fear and suffering are not defeated by fear and suffering. The teaching says when we encounter real life and we are frightened by real life or we are pained by real life, the response to real life is real love. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. It's August here in Colorado, where the bright green from spring has faded into a light brown in the mountains. And the afternoon thunderstorms still come, but they're more rare. And the kids, my kids, are heading back to school. For our family, the journey towards this school year began months ago, when my nine-year-old said farewell to the Montessori school she'd been attending since she was a toddler. In the wake of this change, I've really seen her go through a range of emotions. The poignant sting of grief and endings, the looming uncertainty of the future, and even just the unknown, the gnawing fears of fitting in, and the shimmering anticipation of new adventures. It reminded me of my own crossroads in the third grade. When I went to a new school, I felt completely lost amidst the enormity of the change. I struggled to deal with the intensity of the experience until finally my mom just pulled me out and committed to taking me back to my old school. And I remember at the time I was so relieved to be out of that incredibly hard and uncomfortable experience. But watching my daughter go through it now, I realized I really missed an invaluable lesson. The opportunity to face life fully, openly, and honestly, and to open myself up to really the incredible growth opportunities in doing so. As it reflected on my experience, I've been able to support my daughter in really just being with all that comes up in her experience, from the intense anxiety and fear to the excitement, and to face them all without judgment. And to know that feeling anxious or scared doesn't mean she's unsafe. In fact, it just comes with the territory of venturing out into the world. And witnessing her embrace this experience fully, embrace the fullness of life, has been inspirational. It reminds me that life offers us, through its challenges, an opportunity to further open up ourselves to its fullness. And every transition and every hurdle holds a lesson, a chance to open up, a chance to deepen our connections with others and to come alive. In this episode, our friend and teacher, Sharon Salzberg, returns to the podcast to discuss her latest book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. In this conversation with Jerry, she talks about her own experience during the pandemic that helped inspire the book and how we can all face the ups and downs of life with clarity and compassion, moving from constriction and isolation to a more spacious place of possibility, creativity, and joy. Are you feeling stuck in your work or life and longing for a shift? Maybe you're undergoing a personal or professional transition, or perhaps you're looking for ways to be a more potent leader, colleague, and human being. As a coaching company, we work closely with individuals, teams, and whole organizations to develop self-awareness and relational skills, as well as frameworks they need to be more effective leaders in life and in their career. Whether you're venture-backed or bootstrapped, a founder or a VC, CEO or solopreneur, small business owner or manager, 
Our team of experienced coaches are here to support you in your leadership journey of self-discovery and unlocking your unique leadership style so that you can meet life and work challenges with grace and ease. Become who you were born to be. If you're ready to take your life and leadership to the next level, contact our engagement team for a complimentary consultation. Learn more at reboot.io slash coaching. Well, welcome Sharon Salzberg, my teacher, uh, my friend, my uh, companion, especially these last few years. Um, Sharon Salzberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on the show, Sharon. Thank you so much. And thank you for your beautiful words. Oh, well, you know, before we get started and, and talking about our topic, which is really related to your latest book, Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. Um, I just want to let folks know, I mean, I've, I've mentioned, we've, we've been on the show before and we've talked before and I've been very, very um, vociferous in my praise, but um, there are a few people in my life who have affected me as deeply as you, Sharon. Mm. And, you know, whatever wisdom I might hold really stems from people like you in my life holding me up, especially in times of extreme difficulty for me. And, you know, every now and then I hear somebody praise you out in the world and I read praise and I know from hearing all that, that you do that for so many other people. So from the bottom of all of our hearts, I want to start off by saying thank you. Oh, that, now I'm going to cry. See, wow. you got Let's me see. to cry and you're famous for that. So. Yeah. Well, you know, um, there are very, very few people that you encounter who embody the Bodhisattva vow of working towards the uh, alleviation of suffering of all beings. And um, you are the embodiment of the Bodhisattva. And I know that that's a foundational component of this book, which I'm delighted to speak to you about and, and hear more about. And I'll confess, I've, I've read the book now three times. Wow. Uh, uh, I read the book early in your writing, and then I read it when it was done and submitted. And then I reread it uh, just for this conversation. And each time I read it, I find something new uh, in it. But I want to start uh, this conversation kind of at the beginning. As we, as we both know, real life, the book, is a continuation of the real series, right? Mm -hmm. It was real happiness, real happiness at work, uh, real love, and real change. Do I have that all mm -hmm. right? I think that's okay. all that's real. <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk about real life and what you mean by that phrase. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read to you from your own book. Okay. And then see if we use that as a jumping off point. And early on, you write, perhaps our early conditioning has trained us to imagine that very little happiness is available to us. An oppressive personal or cultural atmosphere might work to depict our right to joy 
as negligible. A room to move is awfully limited. A path to liberation counteracts this conditioning and culturally reinforced constriction. To accomplish such a transformation, it asks us to go forward into the full range of our feelings and reactions with kindness and honesty. When we do so, we realize we can travel from painful constriction to expansion and freedom. This is not a one-and-done journey. It's something we repeat again and again, not because of compulsion and obligation, but because we are fueled by the happiness of discovery, by the relief of openness, and by realizing with joy the breadth and depth of what we might well be capable of. This is what I'm calling real life. Real life is about what happens when we fully engage with our everyday lives, whatever shape our lives take, whatever challenges and obstacles that life may bring. Okay, so I think what I hear you saying is that real life is not just what happens to us, but it's about how we engage with that. Is that right? I think that's really right. The irony, of course, is that I wrote it during the height of pandemic lockdown. So life was right. sort of virtual life, you know? Right, right, and Many right. people, it was not the real life we had expected, any one of us mm -hmm. most likely, and anticipated, and yet here it was. And um, right. it's something also like, I think if I was going to describe myself in one word at the age of 18, which is when I went to India to learn mm. meditation, it would have been fragmented. That would be the mm. word. And so there's something about having a sense of, of some authenticity or some integration so mm. that I didn't feel like I was a different person in all these different circumstances that I think was also in my mind in, in the title that so many people do have a sense of compartmentalization and, and there's no sense of this is who I am. This is who I, this is what I care about that, that carries through. And especially the circumstances were all turned upside down. It's like, where's mm. my normal, you know, workplace and the mm. accolades that come from that and mm. uh, the sense mm. of competition or, or success. It's like everything was turned upside down. Mm. And so what was real in those circumstances? Yeah, you know, it's um it's such a fascinating title in some ways because uh my first reaction to it was uh I'll confess was a little negative. Not mm -hmm. not to the title of the book, but but what it sounded to me like initially was okay, we're going to talk about real life, mm -hmm. not this fantasy stuff that you're talking about, right? And so it always felt like it was chastising mm -hmm. that phrase mm -hmm. for me. But I think what I what I'm really sensing, and and I'm glad you mentioned the the start of of this book being during the pandemic, which you know, just for the listeners, uh, we of course stayed in quite close contact throughout mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. and we continued our twice monthly, sometimes more mm -hmm. contact and sitting together throughout that entire time. And so um, realizing that what I think what, what I'm, I'm hearing you uh, share is that um, so much of the way we react to those 
you know, experiences of our life, how did you put, what was the phrase you use? Um, fully engage with our everyday lives, whatever mm -hmm. shape our lives take, whatever challenges and obstacles that life may bring, you know, um, there's this, uh, and, and the pandemic lockdown is a, is a brilliant evidence of this, right? There's a, there's a, uh, a movement towards constriction, a movement towards isolation. There's a movement towards telling us and convincing ourselves that we're the only one who mm -hmm. fill in the blank suffers or the only one who's feeling, uh, the vicissitudes mm -hmm. of this life. And, and, you, you spoke about uh, the fragmentation that you felt uh, that you really noticed at 18. And as you were describing that, I was thinking about, um, you know, the antidote to that might be considered wholeness. Mm -hmm. And our mutual friend Parker Palmer might say, divided no more. Mm. Right? Which is the title of one of his books. And it's that notion that uh, a life that is, that real life is in effect, how we confront those vicissitudes, mm -hmm. moving towards wholeness, away from that fragmentation, and away from constriction and isolation. Mm -hmm. Am I getting that right? Yeah, no, that is beautifully put. And I think uh, I think about those chat rooms, you know, on Zoom during mm. those years. I mean, I did an enormous amount of teaching online. Everything was online, you know. And right, right. Um, I was so moved by people, you know. It was it was just heart wrenching. Like somebody writing in the chat, "I'm a I'm a resident in a nursing home. I haven't had a visitor in a year." Right. Or somebody right. writing, "I'm a school teacher. My kids can't learn this way." They're right. so depressed. I'm so depressed. And it was like right. every day, so many people struggling so right. badly. And, and my doing what I could, you know, and you helped me tremendously in that period, really. Oh, um, thank you. And it was really important, you know, that I feel that kind of support as I was on demand, you know, like in, yeah. in all these places. And first of all, it was a glimpse of how a lot of people live, you know, and Mm -hmm. And that was that was really poignant, but it was also seeing how okay, you know, we're not going to have what we normally have, and right. what what can be intact, what can be whole, what can right. be flourishing, even in right. this in this kind of time, and and you know, obviously needing to discover to myself before I could impart it, you know, to other people. Well, you know, I, I want to bring attention to that, you know, from our many conversations and for your gracious um, uh, writing the forward to my first book, Reboot, you know how, uh, what a fan I am when an author puts himself into the book mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that we don't stand back. And, you know, as I've often shared with others, um, my first encounter with your work was, was a book called Faith. Mm -hmm which I continue to recommend to people. And um, uh, in part because, to use one of your words, it was real. Mm -hmm. Not that the other books aren't real, but you were there. Okay. And, yeah. and, and maybe because I have the insight of being as close to you as I am and the good fortune of that, the good karma of a past life, 
I know that you're in this book. <laughs> I know that you battled with the feeling of isolation and constriction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when you speak about the journey from that isolation to openness, you know from what you're 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 speaking. You mm -hmm. know the experience of that. And in some ways, what I see is in this book is your encounter with your real life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. But I want to spend a little bit of time on this, you know, what was it like for Sharon? You know, at the end of that introduction, you go on to talk about real life and you say, real life is about the inner journey and journeys we make when we decide to fully live life, whatever the world has presented to us, knowing that life is short and also that life is sacred. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, I have special knowledge. And in that special knowledge, I know that among the things that you did during this whole pandemic period, I mean, you made reference to it a little bit here, about teaching so much. But um, I also know that, that you were on your own inner journey, weren't mm -hmm, you? Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? What was, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, it had so many different levels. I um, was in New York until I think about March. I left New York on March 14th. I decided to leave on March 9th, having just been mm -hmm. there for a few days, really. And I have a home here in Barry, Mass, and it's next door through the forest to the Insight Meditation Society, which we established in 1976. And when I got back here, I thought it was going to be for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I was going to ride it out, you know, and then center was still open, closed within days. You know, mm -hmm. we had to close. And that was a part of what I was going through was like, and in so many ways, this place is, is very tied up with my sense of legacy and you know, what am I leaving behind that's intact? I mean, the work and the books and, but the center, you know, like what if, mm. and mm. I, you know, we're, it was established in 1976 and we're awfully close to that 50th anniversary. And I thought, I want to mm -hmm. make it to 50. I just mm -hmm. want to make it to 50. <laughs> you know, right. what are we going to do? And so I put an enormous amount of effort into, uh, with other people, obviously, you know, figuring out, can we go online? What it would be like to teach online? And, you know, mm. I, none of us really knew how to do it. I still probably don't, you know, but right. Uh, right. that was like a big learning curve and, and a lot of effort, you know, to keep the institution alive. And then mm. there was the reality of what about the staff, you know, and mm -hmm. everything that was happening. And just like, there was so much along those lines. Um, there was, as you know, I have asthma. I was really sick about four years ago. I was, I, you know, nobody knew. And, uh, I was trying to be really careful. There was a period where I just didn't see anybody. Like if somebody was in here dropping off groceries, I went upstairs, you know, they were in another floor or if right. they were cleaning, I was in a different floor. And uh, or looking back, it was like so weird, you know, like right. that right. degree of isolation. And then as things got clearer, you know, in terms of transmission and things like that, and I got more relaxed, you know, then, I'd see people, but it was like three people, you know, for like a year right. or something, right. and except online. Uh, so for me too, the online experience was, was essential. 
Um, and, and slowly, you know, there was more contact or there was more, but I still, unlike so many people, as you know, I have not been on an airplane since like March 3rd, 2020, you know, so I wondered, you know, um, you know, there's always that thought in my mind, like, is this actually going to be okay? Am I actually going to be okay? And, and I was, yeah. Uh, Would you say that you were afraid? Yeah, I was somewhat afraid in the beginning because, as you know, mm-hmm. my father was like severely mentally ill. And so there's mm-hmm. always this little bit of a specter like, is this going to work out okay? <laughs> you know, like, right. am I going right. to be okay? And, and uh, right. I mean, not in a, a deep, deep, deep way, but it's there. It's absolutely right. there. And, and so it was just kind of like, all right, this is different, you know? Mm-hmm. The, and that was the question I kept asking myself with my previous book, Real Change, which came out during the, the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, was what's still true and what can I rely on? Like what's what's holding mm-hmm. me up, you know, like what's supporting mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. And I realized absolutely the practice. And I took mm-hmm. tremendous delight in meditation practice. I went way back to the very first instruction I'd ever gotten. Mm-hmm. And I thought, look at that. You know, and I saw pretty what, what quickly. What did you take from that? What What was that instruction? Oh, I, it was like so not only reassuring, but it was like it was like a blessing. You know, like mm. I've often said, you know, to people, to other people, like it's really important, as far as I can tell, to practice in the boring times, to practice in the mm. um, ordinary times, to practice in the repetitive times, because it's like strength training. Mm-hmm. And when the bottom falls out, you're going to need it. And it's going to be there. And it was there, Um, which was, which was fabulous. And then the the kind of values, like I played around with um, what aspect of what I have been taught through all these years and have been teaching through all these years, do I absolutely count on as being true? Mm -hmm. And I came to the statement of the Buddhas, which was echoed so many years later by Martin Luther King Jr., where the way the Buddha put it was, um, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred mm-hmm. will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. Mm. So I always thought that was a little quirky because here's the Buddha, like Mr. Impermanence, talking about this mm. is an eternal law. Like, what's that about? Mm. Mm. But it's one of those truths like that's uncomfortable but I suspect nonetheless is true. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you think of a certain person or a certain situation, you think, surely not this one, you know, like mm-hmm. this must mm-hmm. be the exception. Uh, this is almost an eternal law, you know, except for that guy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, then I come to really, you know, do I really believe hatred is the answer? And do mm-hmm. I believe that's going to get the job done of inclusion or mm-hmm. transformation? Mm-hmm. No. So, Oh, well, I guess him too, you know. Can I ask a question on that teaching? Because I'm always going to be your student. So I hear that Buddha, that teaching from the Buddha, and I go to a different place, and I'm curious if it would be true that fear Mm -hmm. and suffering are not defeated by fear and suffering. Mm Mm-hmm. And if that too is an eternal law. Yeah. Yeah. Because if that's true, 
than the teaching says when we encounter real life mm -hmm. and we are frightened by real life or we are pained by real life. Um, and there have been so many real life situations where you have provided uh, comfort and solace to people. I think of your friend Shelly and all the work that she's done around gun violence and, you know, the Parkland families, um, uh, the, 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 the response to real life is real love, mm -hmm. which is really hard. I mean, it makes hard. a lot of large, it makes a lot of sense to say yeah. it, yeah. but to feel it. Yeah. You know, I mean, during, during, during those times, you know, you started writing your book and it was such a, a crazy time. Yeah, it was a crazy time. Right. Where we all thought it was going to be a few weeks at the most. And, and in fact, you know, we saw, you know, just kind of like what, what felt like the fabric of society being ripped apart. Yeah. You well, know, I, see, I think we see the consequences of that to some degree because um, <laughs> one of the mantras that we use around here is mental health is not that high. Mm. You know, people are struggling. Mm. Like a lot happened mm. for a lot of people in these three years. It was not easy. And I feel like I am privileged in so many ways as, as we are, you know, that I had support mm. and at home and the country and uh, friends, you know, enormous number mm -hmm. of friends, even if I wasn't hugging. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, work that I find completely meaningful mm -hmm. and a practice, mm -hmm. you know, to help deal with the fear. And also uh, part of it is remembering the joy. You know, it can be so hard when mm -hmm. things are rough and they're so rough for other people and you feel like an idiot, you know, for mm -hmm. sitting and appreciating a sunset or something like that. But it's right outside mm -hmm. my window, sunset, mm -hmm. you know, and so... Well, I, I I hear you, and I and I think back to, you know, the last few years and our encounters, and and you know, we would have our regular Zoom calls, and we would talk, and we would chat, and then we would sit, mm -hmm. and we would literally sit, you know, our eyes would close, and we would be together fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, maybe a half an hour here and there, and we would always look up afterwards and say things like. Well, that was nice. Yeah, that was really great. Right, and mm -hmm. and and it uh, it was a form of connection that sustained mm -hmm. uh, when confronting. I'm sorry, I'm going to say the phrase again: real life. Yeah, you know. But you know, rereading the book yesterday, I encountered another story. A story that I remember from the first times I read the book, but then it struck me again because you gave me this teaching just a few weeks ago when I was struggling with a health scare. Mm -hmm. And to set the context, I had an emergency CT scan or an unexpected unplanned CT scan that showed a herniated disc that uh, was so large that they were thought I was in imminent danger of paralysis. Surprise, not what you expected when you went into the ER. And I was struggling 
uh, I ended up seeing four different neurosurgeons who each said, yeah, you don't have any symptoms. We're not going to touch it, um, which I think is the right thing. And in the end, they said, just go live your life. And, you know, I'll have it checked on a regular basis. But you gave me a teaching at that time. And I'm going to read to you from that because um, I was like, oh, right. And this is one of those instances where the student hears a teaching not once, not twice, three times. And the fourth time, they finally remember. <laughs> okay. And so this is from a paragraph in the book on illness and physical pain on a section in the book. Bob Thurman, a Tibetan Buddhist scholar and author, once said to me, you should never be ashamed of suffering, of the suffering you've been through. Bob was passing along a message he'd received many years earlier after he lost his left eye in an accident. His teacher at the time, a Mongolian monk named Geshe Wangel, Wangyal, Wangyal, had told him, never be ashamed of what happened to you. You have lost one eye, but gained a thousand eyes of wisdom. So in the fullness of being real with that experience, you shared that story with me on a Friday night. After maybe a week or two of intense emotional vicissitudes, where I was getting conflicting information from doctors and trying to decide if if I had the surgery, I might get paralyzed. But if I don't have the surgery, I might get paralyzed. Right. And what occurred to me when I was rereading that section, Sharon, was that was my encounter with a very real aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, mirrors the encounters that so many people have day to day with health decisions, with life decisions, where things are going along great and then shit happens. Yeah. And I don't remember, I remember feeling that upset that I felt like my body had betrayed me. Mm -hmm. And that's what brought that story to your mind to share to me now. But I want to say that it 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 helped me feel so much less afraid. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great, right? In part because I think I let go of that shame. Yeah. But tell yeah. me more about that story because obviously that story has stayed with you as well. Oh yeah, I mean the story the story's been immense for me. Uh, Bob told me that story at first. Um, I think when he read Faith, mm, because mm. Faith is really my story. It's the story of my faith journey, and it involves my father's illness, my mother's having died when I was nine, and so my family was always like a little off, you know, compared to right, kind of right. convention. and Compared uh, to the Brady Bunch. Exactly, which was the comparison at the time. You know, right. things were right. not really right. spoken about. And, and, you know, like what do you say in a school where – in French class, you have to say what your father does for a living. Right. I don't know what to say. Right. Or, right. you know, I have a, a friend whose daughter was adopted from China 
And one of the questions in school was, um, tell us how you physically resemble your mother or your father. I don't know if they were talking mm. about genetics or whatever. It's like a little girl who sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, you know, and didn't know what to say. And and that's also the kind of cultural milieu of, you know, pain is disgraceful or mm. being different needs to be hidden. I mean, it's weird, mm. you know, that. And so it was very much my childhood atmosphere and, mm. Uh, hopefully somewhat less so now, although obviously still prevalent in so many ways. Um, and it was only actually when I went to college, and which was at the age of 16, and, did, and in my sophomore year, I did an Asian philosophy course. Uh, really, honestly, as I often say, I think it was happenstance. I looked, there was a philosophy requirement. I looked mm. at the schedule. I said, hey, that's on Tuesday. That's convenient. Let's do that one. <laughs> you know, and it completely changed my life, beginning with the Buddhist statement that life has suffering in it. This is natural. This mm. is inevitable. And for me, that was no, in no way a depressing comment. That was like, I belong. Mm. You know, finally, it's like, I'm not so weird. I'm not so different. Mm. You mm. know, this is, this is everybody. Not to the same degree, obviously, or same mm -hmm. type, but... In the very vulnerability to that, we all belong, you know, and yeah, yeah, and that was a huge thing for me. And then I heard in the context of that class, mm. there was such a thing as meditation. If you practiced it, you could be a lot happier. So this is Buffalo, New York, mm. 1969, um, 1970. And I looked around Buffalo. I did not see it anywhere. So that's when I created the independent study project and presented it to the university and said, I want to go to India for a year and mm -hmm. learn how to meditate. And this was 1969, 1970. I said, okay. <laughs> you know, right. but I look at that time. I look at that moment so often because I was really a frightened person. I, mm -hmm. you know, I was 18, first 17, actually, and then 18 uh, when I actually left. I had never even been to California before. Mm. I was not the kind of person who said, let me see what, you know, what I right. can do. I was like, I don't think I'll go there. And I went there, you know, it mm. was not a question of maybe I'll study this in graduate school or mm. this is kind of mm. interesting. Maybe someday it'll come to Buffalo or New York city. Mm. Uh, I was like, I've got to go. I've got to learn this. I've got to learn this. And so mm. um, in some ways that's actually why I wrote faith because of that moment. Mm -hmm. like stepping into the center of things, you know? Well, and I, I, I you know, to use the, the current th phraseology from your book, I think what, it, what you're describing is an early encounter with real life. Yeah. It's not to say that, you know, the, the experience of, of being a child who loses first one, then another parent, mm -hmm. right. And having to experience that isn't an encounter with real life. Mm -hmm. But I think that there was this encounter with what was truly happening, what, what was really happening with you. And in this case, the realization of the universality of suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In which, call it karma, call it some brave aspect of, you know, a scared kid's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. character structure put you on an airplane mm -hmm. to India. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we are all the better for that encounter and for the way you uh, responded to that. 
I think about that teaching about suffering, and I, I too had that same encounter when I first began to practice, when I first began to try to study and understand the words of the Buddha, I realized uh, like that just the phenomena of the universality of that suffering. And um, as I often joke with people, um, you could, you would not be uh, uh, out of line if your first reaction to that notion is nihilism, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, well, that sucks yeah. if, if suffering is so universal. But I think that one of the things that you, Ani Pema Chodron, and others have taught me is that by encountering the realness of that suffering, we, uh, even if it triggers our own stories and shame and feeling, we create an, uh, a currency of empathy mm -hmm. that enables um, us to overcome that isolation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I see, I saw you do this so beautifully over these last few years in particular. You know, um, here you were isolated, if you will, yet not. Mm -hmm. You know, in the book, you tell this wonderful story, for example, of the Saturday Night Seda. Yeah. Yeah. Tell that story because it's wonderful. I still love the Saturday Night Seda so much. So, um, you know, I grew up in this Jewish family and not really observant personally, but because family was, was such a strange thing in my life and, and an important thing that mm -hmm. I kept yearning for. The Seder, the Passover Seder, the dinner was, was very important in my, in my family, in my life. So uh, even, you know, as an adult, every once in a while, I've led Seders or I've uh, mm -hmm. been at Seders. We tend to use the Jewish Buddhist Haggadah, you know, uh -huh. because uh, um, the symbolic meaning of the Seder uh the journey, that Exodus journey, is from constriction to openness. The word Egypt mm. actually means narrow place or narrow straits. Mm. And so uh, taken in the best possible way, nothing to do with geopolitics, nothing to do with real places. Um, that is the journey. And it's not just the journey of a people. It's the journey of all people mm. who are seeking that kind of freedom. Um, that's what we do. We move from feeling trapped and constricted and no options and we can't breathe mm -hmm. to this place of openness. And, um, you know, so there I was in lockdown, you know, Seder to go mm -hmm. to. And I saw right. that there was this program on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder, which mm -hmm. was uh, one of the first programs I think written without a writer's room, you know, because no one was together. And mm. it was shot on Zoom or other things like Zoom. And um, it, was a it is a benefit for the CDC Foundation. So I watched it and I loved it. Mm. You know, it reminded me of that symbolism. Right. So I, I was looking at that journey, that arc from constriction, feeling trapped to openness. And I thought, that could be a book, actually. <laughs> There you go. So that became the whole arc of the book. And so the book actually begins with Saturday Night Seder and it ends with Saturday Night Seder. Right, right. As well. And what did it mean for you 
there in that house in Bari, you know, by yourself, you know, tuning in, if you will. What was that like for you? It was fantastic, you know, because um, I had uh, spent some time aspiring to write a play, which I've never done, not yet, mm -hmm. and maybe never, but maybe, mm -hmm. and uh, going to the theater and, and uh, having a lot of friends in the theater in various capacities, and then it was all gone. Folks may not know how much Sharon loves Broadway, yeah, and in particular, the, the show Hamilton. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, well, that's in the book. The Hamilton story, of course, is I was working on a previous book, uh, and I was very late with it and really discouraged. I just hit a place of a lot of discouragement and right. Um which was I think that was my tenth book. And right. it got to the point, to speak very frankly, because it's you and your friends. <laughs> uh, I just thought, just phone it in for God's sake. Nobody cares what you have to say anymore. Just turn Aww. something in. And it was just right. then that a friend came through town and said, Do you he used to work in the entertainment industry. He said, do you want to see something? I can get a ticket for whatever you want to see. And friend, I said, oh, Hamilton. Let's go see Hamilton. And I had no idea. You know, it was so hard to get a ticket right. or whatever. So he got tickets. And and we went. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote it, was still in it, playing Alexander Hamilton. And, and I just couldn't take my eyes off of him. I kept thinking, you wrote this. Like this came out of your brain, like, <laughs> and I thought you can never ever compromise the way I've been thinking. You know, you can. Mm. I'm not really seriously thinking, but mm. you know, kind of half jokingly thinking. I thought you can never just turn something in. You have to put all of who you are into everything that you do. You have to do it so completely. And my friend who brought me still teases me. He said, and then I said, "Do you want to go to dinner?" And you said, "I have to go home and write." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it just turned everything around for me. So uh, right. I have a big debt of gratitude there as well. So, but I think I think you know, implicit in that story, I think what what you're doing is you're sharing yet another encounter with real life, if you yeah. will. Right? Um, how you chose to respond, yeah, uh, matters. Yeah. You know, the what you've done and what you always do is take from your own life encounters and and show up to model for us what does it mean to encounter that suffering mm -hmm. with um with your own wholeness, whatever wholeness you can mm -hmm. muster. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't even want to put big words like courage and bravery on top of it, because sometimes we encounter that with fear mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and or with anger. But um, but, you know, in our long, long relationship, I mean, it probably goes back almost 20 years at this point, which is phenomenal to think of um, to to imagine that what you've taught me most of all is to not shy away from leaning in mm -hmm. even the most difficult points 
you know, and I think that's what you do in this book. And the promise is just like the promise of the Exodus story. The promise is, right, the openness, the non-constrictedness, the freedom and the community that lies on the other side of the Red Sea, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think that that's part of so much of what um, I took away from this book. You know, I mean, there are beautiful stories in here about our interconnectedness. There's, you know, the, the notion of the way in which we are experiencing things. You know, I think of Shelley and what she did, for mm -hmm. example, during COVID. She yeah. took those amazing organization skills yeah. Yeah. and created that organization, Pandemic of Love. Maybe tell us a little bit about what Pandemic of Love is all about. Yeah, Pandemic of Love. Well, Shelley's a, a Shelley Chigilski is her name. And uh, I have to tell her we spoke about her. She'll, she'll be really honored. She um, is somebody I met in Florida when I was there teaching, uh, who was connected to, she was an activist and she lived in Parkland and she began, she's a mindfulness teacher as well. And she began teaching, I think the day after the shooting, just offering what skills she could. And, uh, so we met through a mutual friend and then she said, would you like to come and, you know, do some teaching? So I said, sure. So, uh, we became close through that, that work. And, um, so she brought me into the Parkland community. She So she woke up one morning in the pandemic and she had the thought, you know, you could just create two Google Docs. One that says, um, I need help paying rent or right. medicine for my right. kid or something like that. I need help. The other one says, I can offer help. Right. And you just match people up. Right. And, the, right. you know, you don't need an organization because the money's not going to an entity. It's going from person to person. And that was part of her vision, that it, it be uh, relationship-based. So she started putting it out, and she just started matching people. Right. And matching people and matching people. And then it grew, and then she got volunteers in other cities who said they wanted to do it, so they started matching people. Mm -hmm. And then it grew and grew. And um, at one point, I think the last time I asked, they had exchanged $100 million. Wow. That's amazing. Right. Well, I, I love the story because what you do is encounter real life with a full body contact. Yeah. And uh, the result is people's lives are better. You know, um, and that's, I mean, to me, that's the most profound takeaway. That's the most profound teaching um, is that. Um, we, in effect, create the constriction. We uh, add to the isolation. Um, but if we can allow ourselves the breath to lean in mm -hmm. to even those most difficult moments, we get to create this encounter that comes back to us that, that, that you know, is is powerful you know and and i think people like shelly people like you people who teach us how to encounter real life when it throws itself at us are models that's great there's also you know certain like um you know back to the skills of meditation you know there's a mm -hmm. certain 
need just to like take care of your nervous system. Like I know some of those teachers from Parkland, you know, and we had a retreat up here in Barry for survivors of gun violence. And we thought it was going to be just Parkland because those were the people we knew the best. But of course it was so widespread by then mm-hmm. that people came from everywhere. And uh, one of the teachers uh, from Parkland later told us that I think the retreat ended on a Sunday. They flew back to Florida they were back at work on Monday and that had a drill, which is another thing wow. that's happening all the time for these kids right. and teachers. So she said she had a panic attack in a closet and she was like right. bent over. And then she remembered some of the tools about breathing and things she'd learned in, mm. in the uh, course and the retreat. She said, you know what? I have skills. I have, I have tools. Mm. Tools was like the favorite word of mm. the entire retreat. It's like, mm. we have tools. And look, we have tools. You know, and I always remember this teacher who's saying that I was in a closet, bent over, right. having a panic attack. And then I remembered, oh, you know what? I have tools. I can right. breathe. Let me just breathe. Right. Well, you know, I think that you've given the world another set of tools, as you always do. And, you know, I'm really grateful for that. And as I've always been grateful for for our relationship, for our friendship, and um, I really appreciate your coming on and, and talking today. It's, I know it's going to be a real gift to the folks who listen. And, um, you know, I, I, I just hope that everybody gets a chance to read the book. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, dear. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode... Go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Are you looking for new ways to level up your leadership? Journaling is a potent leadership practice and a powerful tool for radical self-inquiry. Setting aside 15 minutes to journal every day provides the opportunity to process your emotions, identify your strengths and weaknesses, and set long and short-term goals. It can also help you manage stress, improve your personal and professional relationships, and make better business decisions. At Reboot, we know that building and sustaining a journaling practice can be challenging. It can be difficult to prioritize the time and even harder to know what to write about. In our free email course, 365 Days of Journaling, you'll receive daily emails with prompts and exercises to provoke self-reflection and self-discovery and support you in establishing your unique journaling practice. Over the course of the year, you'll cultivate a deep, persistent, and honest dialogue with yourself and discover how journaling can sustain your ongoing growth and development as a leader.
Learn more about this course and sign up at reboot.io slash resources.